Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There's a theory out there that if, say, October rolls around and Donald Trump and the Democratic candidate are very close, and if it's Hillary, that will energize her base, women, minorities, to come out in force. And that's the scenario where Hillary Clinton beats Donald Trump. Here with presenting the second installment of Tuesdays with Marty. Marty Shanker, that is, senior executive editor at Bloomberg News, based in D.C., one of my hands-down favorite journalists, a mensch, Uh, A wizard of headlines, uh, a man for all manner of news stories with us here for the hour. Full disclosure, stay with us. Broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Health Warrior, makers of Chia Bars. Ounce for ounce, Chia has more omega-3 than salmon, more fiber than oatmeal, and packs protein, calcium, and antioxidants. Certified gluten-free, certified non-GMO, certified kosher, and you know me, I love these Chia bars, especially apple, cinnamon, and mango, but you can also get them in chocolate peanut butter, banana nut, coconut, coffee, acai berry, dark chocolate cherry. The Chia seeds are available in premium black Chia seeds and premium white Chia seeds. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. And by Elwood Thompson's, locally owned and independently operated natural foods market serving Richmond, Virginia since 1989. I love the hot bar for breakfast. I love Indian Wednesdays. I love the cafe. I love the beat. Visit them at the top of Carytown and on elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Bloomberg's Washington, D.C. newsroom is senior executive editor Marty Shanker. Thank you so much for making the time, especially on Crazy Primary Tuesday. Uh, my pleasure, Robin. Uh, and, and, and full disclosure, you're going to hear great ambient noise in the background, uh, people fighting over terminals. No Quotron machines, right? Just Bloomberg terminals. Uh, no, no Quotron machines. But, but ticker, uh, ticker tapes and high heels and Gordon Get. No, no, not in the <laughs> D.C. bureau. <laughs> How are you? Talk to me. I mean, when you accepted this job, I mean, you were for long the, the top headline editor um, in, in New York when I met you uh, right. when I was at Business Week. And when they transferred you to D.C., um, you now split time between D.C. and New York. Did you have any idea that Donald Trump would be a bona fide candidate in 2016? No, I would like to be able to tell you that I saw it coming, but uh, I'd be lying if I did. Uh, I will say that in February, I did make a very serious call that I thought that Donald Trump had to be taken seriously. And in fact, Business Week did one of the first covers on Trump examining him as a serious candidate pretty early. So. As a news organization, I think we were there pretty early, and I certainly think that Trump has to be taken seriously now, for sure. And my own personal view is it's, you know, he could wind up being the next president of the United States. Wow. Now, I'm going to be a little presumptuous and move ahead, if not six or seven months. Uh, In a couple of weeks, we have Passover. And I'd like to take the paraphrase from uh, the Seder. What makes this populace different from all other populace? Well, I think he is obviously someone who is just extraordinarily capable in terms of managing the message and managing the media. Um, And we're not the only ones to have pointed out that he has gotten hundreds and billions of dollars of free airtime on the networks. And he seems to just every cycle try to escalate his rhetoric and he gains more support. So unlike others, he has social media TV, 24-hour, seven coverage, 
and he's able to exploit it better than anybody else has ever done. What I don't understand is, you know, if he were running as a straight-up businessman, as a private sector problem solver, it would be one thing. But it's been documented actually very well by your colleague Tim O'Brien um, that, that he's not been a great businessman. I mean, he took whatever inheritance he took from his father, if it had just been invested in the S&P 500, you know, maybe would have done better than what he did, just rolling it into Manhattan properties and casinos and various ventures and stakes and this and that. I don't understand... This is what I don't get, Marty. How a person who, um, you know, much of his life has been flashy, has been out there, loves to hear himself talk, loves to tell you that he's worth however many billions of dollars, appeals to uh, lesser educated, uh, uh, underemployed people. How does that? How does that work? How do they just skip over the fact that? Oh my God, yeah, this guy's married to a supermodel and he's offshored all of these jobs and he's produced these things abroad and he's let go of people in the past. So how do they just put those blinders on? I think that he is able to tailor his message to appeal to a working class, you know, um, hourly wage type of worker, and 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 it's sort of aspirational. They, he is able to cast himself as somewhat of a self-made man, and I think that there's a wide swath of the population who sort of likes that, the idea of that. But he is giving voice to what a lot of people in their deepest recesses think and are afraid to give voice to and he's just coming out and saying it and it it is resonating with a wide number of people many of them who've never participated in the political process before and he's tapped uh, something that's really special now you said earlier that you could see you know lest we underestimate him again you could see a scenario where he becomes president oh yes do you think that there is enough of the electorate and enough of a protest vote and enough of kind of Republicans who, let's say, at, at most half-heartedly would support him out there that would put him over the edge against, say, a Hillary Clinton? Well, I, I do think there are two sides to that equation, right? There's Donald Trump's clearly 40 percent of the electorate who was supporting him. But I do think that Hillary Clinton, I mean, I, I, I think that she would be a fine president, but she is not a fine candidate. She is uh, has trouble on the campaign trail getting people to feel that uh, she is not yesterday's candidate um, and inspiring people. Um, so I think the combination of a energized Trump base with some Hillary fatigue could, in fact, lead to a Trump presidency. Now, this is this is, of course, Tuesdays with Marty. Uh, the second in the very popular syndicated series that we're gonna we're gonna cram down your throat every month, Marty. Um, but of course, pending the results that we get tonight, what from Florida, from Ohio, uh, right. what is there a path for a viable firewall, an establishment firewall against what is increasingly looking like the inevitability of Trump getting all the delegates he needs? Could we have? Uh, a, a brawl in Cleveland, a thriller in Cleveland? Well, I think that everything depends on Ohio, right? Uh, I think Trump will win Florida. I think the polls are showing he has a double-digit lead there, and it'll be hard to imagine Marco Rubio mounting any kind of challenge tonight. So it all comes down to Ohio, where most of the polls say it's very close. If If Donald Trump does take Ohio, and I think there's a fairly good chance that he does, um, I don't see how there's any firewall. Uh, you may then begin to see some established figures give in and support him. Um, 
I do think that that would severely reduce the chances for a brokered convention because, uh, as Trump has said many times, he will do well in New York, he will do well in Pennsylvania, he will do well in California. Um, so there will be a mathematical path for him to get the delegates he needs if he can take Ohio. Now, if John Kasich does take Ohio, then there is a scenario where the establishment now has a candidate it can rally around and mount some sort of a challenge to Trump in those very high delegate states later on in the primary season. Right. So I, I think it really all comes down to Ohio. And what's interesting there is, you know, not many people are talking about the possibility, but it could be so close we may not even know who won tonight. And it may take a couple of days. So that'll just keep the networks buzzing. Is there any modern precedent for, I certainly have never seen it in, in my political or news following lifetime, um, the party's uh, standard bearer for this election kind of openly dumping on the previous nominee, actually who came out and kneecapped him in fairness, we should say about Mitt Romney. But also in the debates, he was out there using Bush as a kind of a, a, a nasty benchmark. I mean, your brother's Bush. Look what your brother did in Iraq. Right. I mean, has there ever been a scenario like that where you could torch those bridges? And it seems like he only gains from that. I think from my untrained eye, he on balance gained from the Romney thing. Romney wasn't a great shakes candidate. Romney maybe was part of the problem. I don't I don't even know the metaphor, Marty. Maybe it's like those old, you know, Chinese uh, finger handcuffs, like the more you pull, the tighter they get. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I do think that Romney um, was speaking from the heart, and he feels that Trump is a threat to the Republican Party and to the presidency itself. But as you pointed out, uh, Donald Trump had a perfect retort to that, that he's a failed candidate, and why would anybody listen to him? And he should have beaten Obama, and we wouldn't be in this place if he had. And um, and it just seems to strengthen him. And finally, on this matter, again, it's more of a subjective question. Um, I can't understand stepping back from this. If the, you know, the party has had eight years, the GOP has had eight years to stew about Obama, Obamacare, you know, fiscal cliffs, blocking this, X, Y, and Z, uh, the, the Tea Party foment, and then the prospect, this odious prospect of a Hillary ascendancy and a Hillary inevitability, and the best they could do, and again, it's not a loaded question, but it's an honest question, the best they could do is, you know, at this point, an outsider who is just slamming the establishment of the party and a senator who is disliked by many of his peers really openly. They don't even take me off the record when they tell me this. You're talking about Sanders here. I'm talking about Cruz. Oh, I mean, I'm Ted talking Cruz. about the GOP. Just take the GOP. The best they could do. They had all this time to groom someone to take on like the, the brawl of 2016. Everybody knew Hillary was coming down the pike years ago, and right. they couldn't get their stuff together. I know. It is pretty incredible, and it does speak to the—but I think it's just a reflection of the electorate itself um, and the gridlock that has been in Washington for eight years there. I mean, you do have a, in my view, a charismatic leader in Paul Ryan, but he wants nothing to do with a national campaign, having had the experience four years ago. But it's true. Uh, we, we Bloomberg News did a story yesterday, the many, many ways nobody likes Ted Cruz in the Senate. I mean, there's only been one senator who has publicly backed Cruz, uh, which is pretty incredible. And he is just the outsider's outsider. And 
if you look at the polling, uh, Ted Cruz does even more poorly than Donald Trump does against Democrats. So uh, it is pretty incredible that the Republican Party was not able to field a better pool. But then, you know, a lot of people thought George, uh, not George, uh, Jeb Bush was the establishment candidate. He had, you know, $100 million in the bank, and he just wasn't a very good candidate. I think it just underscored maybe the, the the residual Bush fatigue, which I can't believe. And when I step back from this again, am I correct in recalling that Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were initially um, Tea Party insurgents? That's right. And now they're at the they're the kind of the firewall against something even worse that may have been stoked by the Tea Party. If you look at Palin's support for Trump, I know we're getting into cosmic questions here, but I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, finally to maybe to take you away from. The political season a little bit. How um, the the establishment of the Republican Party is being recentered. I mean that that gravitational shift, the axis of of whatever it is, and what kind of GOP is going to emerge from this? Well, you know, I think we have to look at the demographics of the United States. Uh, Trump support is coming from what are the so-called working class, white, southern, industrial uh, regions of the country. And it's more of a class issue than it is a political issue. These are people who feel that they've been left behind. Um, They are totally ticked off that bankers are making millions of dollars and they have not had a real wage gain in 12 years. And I think it's basically a class struggle and the GOP is going to have to reconstitute itself. But I shouldn't you shouldn't also forget that the Democrats are having their own internal issues. I mean, Bernie Sanders is resonating with a large number of Democrats, and he represents a, you know, a sense of revolt as well on the Democratic side. Right. Talk to me about the second most important headline today. I know you you constantly keep your eyes on the Bloomberg terminal, the wonderful Bloomberg Terminal with its top headlines. Alas, my access has lapsed. I last wrote for Bloomberg in, in early 2014. Well, be happy to sell you a terminal. <laughs> sure, for... yeah. You know, uh, the, our audio engineer over there, hook him up with a check. Just open up our <laughs> lockbox. Uh, see if you can get him some. You prefer that in dollars or euros or euro dollar forwards? I don't I don't understand. What else What else is top on your radar right now? Well, we, uh, you know, I think oil prices are really something that's driving a lot of sentiment and a lot of geopolitical issues around the world. Um, We had a piece today on, uh, the headline was, if oil prices have hit bottom, the top may not be too far away. Mm -hmm. And this recalls the experience of oil prices in 2015, where they seemed to have momentum and then stalled at 60. And there are a lot of people out in the marketplace who think that the current Firming in oil prices is another one of those head fakes that it may just stall at $40 in that area and then start declining again. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of countries, a lot of investors are ha- have uh, you know direct interest in where oil prices are going. I did read something in your old alma mater, the Wall Street Journal, this morning yep. about the difficulty for shale producers to ramp up. I read that too. Right. <laughs> no offense to anyone. We're equal opportunity headline readers. I know. You know. Certainly, when you get up at, at two in the morning, whatever it is, Marty, you're scanning all the headlines: the FT, the New York Times, Reuters. Um, that might be. It, it occurred to me that maybe the Saudis played this bluff correctly. Um, yeah, it's possible. Um, 
And uh, the, the interesting thing about the journal piece, is, as you mentioned, was that the financial difficulties. It, it's always been the conventional wisdom that the shale producers in the U.S. could just basically turn on a switch and increase production as soon as prices get to a certain level. And that piece suggested maybe that's not so true, that their financial difficulties will make it difficult for them to just turn on the switch. Um, at the same time, there, if oil prices do firm up and do continue to rise, they're down today, uh, it, it's quite possible that the U.S. production could come back fairly quickly and keep any increase from, from being sustained. Now, I don't understand. We were always told that these alternative producers, whatever they are, if you talk about the tar sands in um, Canada, Canada, if you talk about North Dakota here, the shale producers, the kind of the marginal producers, especially those that are dependent on uh, bank debt and month-to-month -month financing, that their break-even cry uncle price has to be like in the $60, $70, $80 right. range. And I can't believe that we touched below $30. And the conventional wisdom is that it just is even cheaper at this point for just to, for them to keep it up and not pack it up. And that's where I'm confused. It's like we're not hitting any... It's harder than ever to just determine an equilibrium uh, supply-demand balance globally for oil, where it used to be that OPEC was deciding this, and now OPEC has really been disrupted. It's to totally been disrupted. And uh, if you look at the employment figures in those places that you mentioned, I mean, a lot of people have lost their jobs in those shale-producing areas. And those wells, as many people have, have discussed, can basically stay dormant for quite a long time with minimal expenditures. Um, so you haven't seen that many failures, per se, but uh, there's no question it's had an economic impact and uh, for those local, for the North Dakotas of the world. Uh, but can it turn itself around in a month or two? I think it could. Uh, full disclosure, we are talking to the venerable Marty Shanker, senior executive editor at Bloomberg News, a friend of mine. He's well-traveled in, in all manner of journalism. He was at the Wall Street Journal for years. Bloomberg was lucky to pluck him and bring him on board there. He was uh, uh, covering, curating the top red headlines and all of Bloomberg for the longest time. Uh, we became famous friends when I was at Business Week, and Business Week was acquired by Bloomberg. And now he is in Washington, D.C., where he is following um, international finance and Washington. I do want to get at this other big topic, and it's, it's kind of hardwired to oil and commodities, is China. Um, where does China stop? Where does China start? I mean, if we're looking at weakness of emerging markets, is it just a proxy? Is it just... Uh, a kind of a derivative, a second-order reflection of all the trouble that's going on in China. Like, I look at the Malays right now in Brazil. Right. And the Brazilian street is up in arms, and Dilma Rousseff might lose her job, and she's facing impeachment, and the, the prior prime minister, the premier, is facing, uh, uh, you know, some sort of criminal action. Is this country only as good as China is? And, for example, the demand for its soybeans or the demand for its coffee or the demand for its uh, steel or, or minerals? Well, I think uh, we would be remiss to forget that Brazil's problems uh, way predate any problems in China or perceived problems in China. Uh, Brazil has been on a downswing for two years now, uh, which is a direct result of commodities. This was a commodity-based economy, and when the bottom fell out, there was no alternative for them to rely on. Plus, the political 
the infrastructure, the uh, other glaring problems that are, uh, that were hidden by, you know, uh, unbelievably strong commodities prices are now being exposed. I mean, as the tide went out, you saw what was left. And China, I think, represents a completely different scenario. Um, I think a lot of people forget that the Chinese have been around for a really long time. And the Chinese mindset is that this is, the, the life is absolutely a marathon. And they have a much longer perspective in terms of policy. And they, while they are trying to react to uh, problems that are short term, they have a much longer term view. So I think the world gets pretty upset about what's happening in China, while the Chinese take a much more deliberative approach. But I wonder, Marty, whose numbers can you trust? I mean, it seems like we're seeing um, other stress points, other creeks where you see, I don't know, the Baltic dry volume stats. That if you can't trust the, you know, Beijing's numbers, if this country is so centrally planned, if everything is ultimately a function of their printing and, and, and they're building these phantom cities and the, the epic levels of construction. We had Jim Chanos on the show, yep. and he illustrated to us just the, the, the cement demand over the last five years or six years since the bottom you know, of the economy. Um, at, at what point, like, what are the numbers that you trust the most, that either you track on the Bloomberg terminal or that are globally transparent, trusted numbers that tell you that China perhaps is weaker than it says it is? Well, we have a... Uh, we have a part of Bloomberg called Bloomberg Intelligence, um, and uh, where that's independent analysis, and they, uh, on the Bloomberg terminal, uh, provide what I consider to be the most authoritative numbers on China, um, basically using their own expertise and whatever publicly available numbers are, are uh, gleaned from China. Um, one of the numbers uh, that they trust uh, our car sales, um, which they think is very reflective of what's actually happening in the economy there. But you're right, um, whether it's by design or just because of the enormity of the Chinese economy, uh, some of the numbers can be suspect, um, and you have to basically take it all in and, and look for trends rather than precise data points. Mm. Um, it is true that, that there's a lot of speculation about China's debt levels, but, you know, they are a source of great concern, and the numbers that have come from China itself are pretty, pretty concerning. What do you think the wisdom is behind this unsolicited um, bid from a Chinese-led investor group for Starwood, the hotel giant, which we thought was, was uh, shacking up with Marriott pretty comfortably? What's, behind, what's the motivation there? I think it's clearly a diversification. Um, they're looking to uh, create a more service-oriented economy in China, and this would give them expertise in that area. They have tons, as you know, foreign reserves, U.S. dollars, and they want to invest them. And this is an area in which they think there's growth potential and safety. Uh, I, you know, it does remind you of uh, the Japanese acquisition frenzy of the 1970s, and that didn't work out too well for them. Um, so it's, it, it definitely bears watching, and I don't think anybody thinks that this is the end. I think that there will be uh, continued strategic 
acquisitions by Chinese companies of businesses abroad, not just in the U.S., but everywhere. Is there something about the real estate business, Marty, that, you know, I was looking at the, the REIT numbers. Luthold sent me the green guide, uh, their green book, and I was yeah. I was struck to the abnormally large returns. REITs have had a huge bounce back since everything cratered in 2007, 2008, and then some. And I'm wondering, uh, is there something peculiar about this space? And broadly, real estate, residential real estate, commercial real estate. If you know, anecdotally, if you go up and down Manhattan, swaths of, of properties have been bought cash only uh, by Chinese families. Uh, I used to live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and it's amazing the boundaries, the kind of the psychic boundaries of what's the Upper West Side now has gone well into 125th Street. Oh yeah. Um, and and Prudential Douglas Elliman, last I checked, was very actively looking for Chinese real estate brokers. What does that tell us? Is that a is that you know I'm I was raised in Miami and whenever we have distress in Latin America or their fears of expropriation or or hyperinflation or something nefarious like in Venezuela or Argentina, the reflex is to come and put you know buy condos for all cash in Miami. What is what does the Chinese appetite for real estate writ large tell us in the United States in places like San Fran, which is obviously inflated, in New York? Oh, I think it tells you that there's still a, a, a some concern over Chinese policy, and there's an awful lot of wealth being created in China, and the people who have become recipients of that wealth want to protect it. And they perceive uh, a greater sense of security and safety in the United States. Mm. Um, And I should also point out, now being a resident of Washington, D.C., that uh, Washington is increasingly becoming sort of like Brooklyn South. There are residential construction happening throughout the Washington, D.C. area, everywhere you look. It is truly a boomtown. I'm not sure whether Chinese money is involved, but I wouldn't be surprised. It looks like the only non-correlating asset that you and I can buy these days, Marty, is maybe a Chipotle franchise in Tehran. Sure. Everything is zagging together. I'm looking to zig, you know, and here you are, you guys. That's a pretty uncomfortable and awkward and ham-fisted transition into this headline you guys had. Hedge fund pain brings loss worse than 08 in crowded stocks. And I was shocked, shocked that Bloomberg calculates that since July, uh, companies in which hedge funds have the highest ownership percentage have plunged 31% compared with a 2.8% decline in the S&P 500 index. Um, aren't, aren't hedge funds paid 2 and 20% and obnoxious cuts and scrapes of, of assets under management and performance to provide much better returns than these? Uh, you would think so. And I guess it's not surprising that hedge fund failures have been running at the greatest rate since 2007. Uh, it's a, just a phenomenon that um, a lot of hedge funds plowed into momentum stocks and that when things go bad, and they did, that people sell together. And when that happens, you have a shortage of buyers. So they've been hit exponentially harder than just the regular retail investor. It's quite a phenomenon. I never understood, um, you know, when I looked at the supposed rise of investor activism in 2006 and 2007, which was rather short-lived because then you ran into this horrific bear market, why more investors out there, not just hedge funds, but the fidelities of the world, the T. Rowe prices of the world that are are coming up against this um, indexing and ETF and passive juggernaut, why aren't they more activists, especially with smaller positions where you can... um, 
do more, have more than moral suasion with the board. Go in there, actually take a stake and, and threaten them. We've seen much bigger companies, even Home Depot, with small hedge fund stakes go in there and affect a change. And so if you want to get some element of performance or self-determination back, I never understood why so many mutual fund managers tell me, oh, no, that's just not what we do. It is amazing, and it's also amazing that the uh, Fidelity uh, shareholders and the, the, the people who give them the cash to invest don't proselytize for just such an activist meant. I mean, they're, the, it is incredible, and Robin, you know this, you've been in this business for a long time. They oftentimes just sit back and let it happen to them. Uh, and it is quite amazing that even the people who are investing in fidelity funds don't either go to them and say you must do something or pull their funds out. But, I did I did get in know. a lot of trouble. I had a, a big feature story for Business Week on Fidelity, I think circa 2006, where I said, where Fidelity's divided loyalties. And, um, you know, it, it would behoove you if you're getting money, if you're collecting uh, much bigger than the average index fund uh, fee, which is falling, to go out there and fight and, and keep these companies honest because Fidelity had massive stakes just by dint of its huge assets under management. But the problem with those guys is... A big part of their business, a more of a cruise control part of their business is running the retirement funds, as you know, of these big Fortune 500 companies. And you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to be an agitator if you're getting automatically listed in their 401k plans, if you're running other benefit plans for them, the rollover plan for them. And that's, a, that's an inside baseball conflict of interest. But when you step back from it, I kind of lament the missed opportunity for this ownership society. I think it's great as a, as a devout indexer that everybody has kind of said, you know what, don't beat the market, be the market. But then there's this enormous uh, diffusion of responsibility in parallel that companies just sit back and say, you know what, it's not what we do activism. If we don't like what the company's doing, we just sell the stock. Yep, that seems to be the approach. And you're right, there is this competing interest uh, among the fidelities of the world and the companies that offer their funds. So what, what happens to hedge funds? These are the ones that, again, are not charging incidental fees, that these are sophisticated investors. And I would expect that, you know, it's one thing if you lag the S&P, they might say we're, we're absolute return. People don't benchmark us to the S&P. But when you look at this huge divide, I mean, you're talking about 3% down versus 31% down. It just throws a lot of egg on the face of hedge fund managers. I don't know how they face their investors and and pray for them to, to carry on with them, much less give them more money. Well, many of them, uh, you know, California threw a lot of them out, and a lot of them have failed, and there will be more failures. But, you know, these things can run in cycles. If the broader market has a couple of lackluster years and some hedge funds uh, have great years, I think those obviously will survive. Hmm. But it'll, it, it looks to me like, the hedge fund industry is shrinking, and that's a trend that's going to continue. Talk to us about the Federal Reserve, Marty. Um, now, we're not at the emergency low of interest rates that was set in December of 2008, but we're darn close to it, and we'd expected a lot more normalization this year. Uh, certainly, um, the United States economy has defied the critics and the skeptics that after 2008 said it could never come back. It could never, um, you know, claim the, the mantle of world's most admired and, and powerful and omnipresent economy. And it seems like that's happened again. You know, certainly uh, everybody is plowed into treasuries. Everybody wants U.S. assets. The real estate market here has recovered. Mm -hmm. The stock market has had a 
gangbusters seven years. Um, what is the Fed going to do in, in that everything in the world is hardwired to U.S. interest rates? If you do perceive a lot of weakness in these economies where government interest rates are negative, a lot of weakness in emerging markets, how does the Fed just put blinders on and, and deal with the United States? Well, it doesn't. Uh, and I think Janet Yellen and the Fed members have made it clear from their statements that international uh, developments do weigh on their decision making. And we recently had a story that Fed policy is as much made in China as it is in the U.S. Um, they are definitely looking at what other major economies are doing, uh, including the ECB. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see in this week's Wednesday's statement whether they acknowledge those international risks. But, you know, uh, eight weeks ago, everybody thought, oh, my goodness, the U.S. is going to head for another recession. This was in the wake of the China discord. Um, and there was a great deal of fear in the marketplace. Uh, fast forward eight weeks, and now we're looking to see whether the Fed is going to raise either two or three more times this year mm. because the economy is doing very well. You know what's odd is I can lament as a saver that now um, for – I've been punished really since last time I can remember, 2007. I've not been able to put my money comfortably in a savings account or a, a CD or a money market account. It seems like I've been so smoked out of that safety for so long. Banks have gotten away with – you know, it's crazy. You look in the windows, they're like, big super saver. 0.50%. You know. could do it. You could do it. You could do it. I, you know, before I left Manhattan, JP Morgan was offering a 10-year CD for 2%. Um, and, and what's strange, Marty, is I'm hearing from an increasingly from entrepreneurs and business owners and people who are eyeing exits and sales is saying, I'm actually deferring this because I'm terrified of where to park my money. Well, you can always park it in a country that's providing negative interest rates. And I don't, <laughs> un I don't understand that. I can't for the life of me. under Are things that bad that, you know, the number out there, I think, by uh, one of the one of the analysts that you guys had on Bloomberg TV is that something like th uh, 30, 40 percent of, of non, you know, non-U.S. sovereign debt has close to negative yields now? It is uh, quite remarkable and unprecedented, obviously. And, you know, unintended consequences are something that everybody needs to be aware of. We've been obviously living in an environment uh, for eight years now of unconventional monetary policy, and the jury is still out on whether it's going to work the way it's intended. I, I just don't understand how we unwind from that. If the criticism of the Greenspan Fed was that it waited way too long past 2004 to normalize, if the criticism of Greenspan before that was in 98, it was way too loose. I, I, I'm not exactly sure that the Fed knows what it's doing, Marty. And you go back and look at the transcripts of 2007, it's like, well, we, we see real estate subdued, but nothing big happening. I mean, you expect that these guys, and, and this gets to another story you had. What is it? The dot plot? Right. <laughs> how, how does that even work? Why, why are we expecting the Federal Reserve governors and Janet Yellen to kind of have this prescience and this this... Uh, omniscience that they kind of don't have. They don't have. And it's not, uh, I wouldn't cast it as they don't know what they're doing. I think they know what they're doing. They just don't know what the consequences of what they're doing are. Uh, because this is territory we've never been in, and they're quick to acknowledge it. Did you say they know what they're doing, but they don't know what the consequences of what they're doing are? Correct. I mean, that's, 
that just blows my mind. But it's true because no one has been here before. Uh, there's never been a central bank that has had uh, the task of unwinding unprecedented quantitative easing um, for a period of eight years. This is—it's never happened in history, and so they can't possibly know exactly how, how things are going to work out. Plus, as I mentioned, they're not the masters of their own fate. We are now a completely connected global economy. What the ECB does, what China does, um, what New Zealand does has an impact on the currency, has an impact on our economy. So you can't possibly know what an unwinding of this unprecedented easing is going to mean. Marty, when we last had you on, you talked about, I would, I would worry less about the drop in the price of oil compared to the velocity in the drop of the price of oil. That is something that could really unnerve countries and economies out there that had, had an expectation very rationally that many people said that after 2008 that oil would never fall below triple digits. Obviously, the Great Recession and the financial crisis changed that. But this really came out of left field. I mean, here you have uh, the United States is growing, the biggest economy in the world, and oil prices precipitously crashing because China's growing more slowly and emerging markets are falling. And you've had these secular events like the shale oil boom in the United States. Um, I don't understand how the, you know, in, in previous years, I think the market would have applauded low oil prices in the United sure. States. It's great for fast food. It's great for retail. But people are now terrified when you have these days that oil prices fall five or 6% because there's suddenly a threat of, my gosh, maybe it'll force Venezuela to default. Maybe Russia will have to do something. Maybe, you know, we've seen the Saudis who have tons of dollars have to go to the capital markets. Maybe this could be a destabilizing event. Yes, I, I think that the velocity of change is something that uh, the world has got to get used to, if they ever can. Volatility is, uh, in, in equities anyways, twice what it was a year ago. Um, and I think that also speaks to the interconnectivity of every market, every asset class. Um, a precipitous drop in oil has impact on the uh, currencies of, of uh, the Soviet ruble. and. Uh, that has implications for sovereign debt everywhere in the world. So, yes, I think that we are in an unprecedented, again using that word, uh, period of market instability, and, and nothing I can see is going to change that. What do you think about Iran coming online? Um, and Iran suddenly really eager to ramp up its petrochemical uh, capacity, which has really rusted since the fall of the Shah and the onset of sanctions and redoubling sanctions under uh, Reagan and Clinton, that these guys are suddenly hungry to ramp up at a time when there's no love lost between Riyadh and Tehran, uh, that the last thing that these OPEC member countries need is someone flooding the market with oil. How do you view all this? Oh, well, that's uh, unfortunately, uh, there's not much anybody can do about it. Iran is going to make up for lost time. As you mentioned, sanctions have had a very destructive effect on their petrochemical industry, and they're going to make it up as fast as they possibly can. Um, and I, I think it was uh, the Russians who said that Iran is just not going to agree to cut output, and that's the world we're going to live in. I mean, people forget that Iran was, I think, the ringleader for cutting output. Iran and Venezuela, who That's I right. think maybe to conceal the fact that they couldn't exactly ramp up output, output they could go out there and saber rattle and, and project actually bigger than they are uh, and thumb their noses to the West by doing that. But oddly enough, now Iran is out there saying, 
you know, screw you <laughs> to Saudi Arabia. We're pumping. Yep. And we're pumping. Um, and I wonder what this is going to do, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 new, the new OPEC reality. Now that you guys had a headline not too long ago that uh, North Dakota is now bigger than Ecuador in terms of the smallest member of OPEC. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm struck by the fact that green technology is continuing. You're seeing huge strides in solar huge strides in electric vehicle capacity, in spite of the fact that uh, commodities markets, recycling, scrap metal, everything else that has fallen with commodities markets in lockstep with the fall of commodity prices, it seems like this green dream burns on. It does. And that's as much a consequence of political leaders taking uh, steps to make sure that that industry continues to bloom and develop. I mean, it's considered to be a social good. So it has more than just fundamental economics working for it. It has some moral suasion, too. So I, uh, and you see the international agreements that were made in Paris. Uh, global warming, except for certain candidates, is a reality that people are beginning to accept. And I think that the green revolution is just going to continue and get even stronger. Full disclosure, we're talking to Marty Shanker, senior executive editor at Bloomberg News and longtime veteran of the Wall Street Journal. Um, Marty, uh, I want to get at um, some of the headlines you're seeing in the stock market in the United States here. Um, that that you know this has been an epic rally since the March 2009 bottom, if we mark seven years, and yet sentiment still wouldn't say that. You still see volatility readings and investor pessimism levels at highs. You see a lot of capitulation and um, uh, you know the old the the old saw about cash on sidelines. I don't even want to get there, but. Uh, what would have to happen to get the animal spirits of the, the, the U.S. investor back to something we saw maybe 16, 17 years ago? It hasn't happened yet. No, it hasn't happened. We actually had a story recently about this is the most unloved bull market in 50 years. And I do think that all the factors that you pointed out of uncertainty in the world are going to have to get sorted out in some way. Uh, for people to feel less anxious and willing to go all in. And, and, you know, we can't forget how the 2008 meltdown was ingrained in people's psyche. So I, I think we still have a reticence and an un, unease over equities um, as a result of that experience, uh, even though uh, we've come all the way back and more. Is, is there truth to this idea that um, human capital is back in vogue, that after holding off for so long, companies have plowed so much into cash buybacks and refinancing and ledger domain that, you know, they've held on for so long and now it's becoming irresistible that you're seeing robust gains uh, in payrolls to have to go out there and pay for people? Well, I, there's no question that employment levels are uh, being repaired all across America uh, the question is, what kind of jobs are they? Uh, they tend to be the more lower-paying jobs. And uh, while I think people, are, uh, employers are, yes, more willing to invest in human capital, it tends to be the lower-wage uh, employment, which also leads into the political dynamic of what we're seeing in the election. I mean, and how people feel that things are really not better on the employment front when the statistics say they are. Mm. Uh, take me to some of the other things you're hearing from readers out there, actually headlines that got huge reactions, um, areas that you think are maybe undercovered um, that we should be talking about more. Well, I, I, I think one of the great 
uh, undercovered stories in American media is Brexit and the real prospect that the UK could leave the European Union. Um, I cannot uh, overstate the importance of that vote for not just the UK, but for the world order. Um, what well, can you stop for a minute? Tell me what would be in it for the man on the street in the UK, other than saying, you know, you guys are a mess and we don't want to have anything to do with you. Well, it's still I, a pound-denominated economy. It is still a pound-denominated economy, but the interconnected nature of business in Europe tied to the euro is unmistakable. There are many companies have said that if the if the UK leaves the European Union, they will take employees out of London. Um, it makes transactions that much more difficult, and it just sort of uh, represents a kind of populist backlash that is you see not just in the UK but in France, and many people think it could lead to the dismantling of uh, the European Union in itself, mm. which would not be a good thing for the world. There's this one stat on the EU budget. The UK can stop sending 350 million pounds, equivalent to half England's school budget, to Brussels every week. This money could be spent on scientific research and new industries. Yeah, that probably true, but it's also true that the uh, in, I don't know what the calculus is, but the the enormous economic benefit of actually being in the European Union makes it. I think, uh, an overwhelmingly positive thing for the UK. Hmm. Uh, one thing I've asked other guests here, and you know, you, you, we're not saying that it's an inevitability here, far from it. In fact, you said that you could see a Trump presidency actually happen. But if you step back from it, in a year from now, you could very possibly have uh, a woman uh, president of the United States, uh, a woman head of the biggest central bank in the world, um, you have Christine Lagarde in France. You have Angela Merkel. This would be so unprecedented for all of this to happen. When I sit back and see Europe in this malaise and heavy lies the head that, that you know, Angela Merkel's crown, um, imagine the optics just of that. Yeah, well, I know a lot of women who would say it's about time, right? Uh, especially in the United States. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was running England uh, 30 years ago. So... Um, I do think that women in leadership roles is a growing trend. Uh, you have an unprecedented number of women in the U.S. Congress, I believe. Um, and I think that that's absolutely a positive thing. I mean, a lot of the statistics show you that diversity in the workplace adds to productivity, and I don't see why that wouldn't be true for public life as well. I do want to say, getting back to D.C., what do you think happens if you have Trump at the top of the GOP ticket to uh, the Senate potentially being in play? I mean, you have uh, worries about establishment voter turnout. Senators certainly out there, incumbents and congressmen don't want to be seen stumping with Trump. <laughs> it's one of those it's one of those embarrassing things. Like in 2008, a lot of them did not want to be seen with Bush. But this one is even worse because it has racial undertones and populist undertones, and there could be a split screen of, of, of Trump protesters brawling with Bernie Sanders people. How, how could that play out? Well, uh, we and others have written that is the very stark choice facing the Republican Party if Trump is the nominee, and I think he will be, is whether they line up behind him because they think that will preserve the Republican Party, or does it reconstitute itself, 
reconstitute itself in another form. Each individual candidate for office is going to have to make that determination. Chris Christie has made that determination. Well, by the way, stop there. You lived in New Jersey, right? Yep. <laughs> do you still have property in New Jersey? Are you a New Jersey I do. Taxpayer? I still have a home in New Marty, Jersey. Marty, what the heck is going on there? Not only did, did he seem like he was taken hostage when he made that endorsement, but this, the news yesterday when Trump comes out and calls him a, effectively a deadbeat, you know, Kasich's hardly been in, in Ohio. It's like Chris Christie. You know, I didn't want to say that, but I had to say it. This poor guy. What's in it for him at this point? What's your read? Uh, I can only imagine he thinks uh, and uh, what he says what he thinks and what he said was the thing he wants most to do is make sure that Hillary Clinton is not the next president of the United States and I take him at his word that's why he's aligned with Donald Trump because he thinks it'll further that goal but this guy was the establishment darling the standard bearer I mean I can't I just cannot believe it still Uh, Sarah Palin I can understand when you've fully gone rogue and you have nothing to lose and this guy apparently has calculated that as well. Well, remember, Chris Christie is the guy who embraced Obama during after Hurricane Sandy. He's not a conventional politician, even if he was the conventional candidate. And he is an independent thinker, and I don't think in this election cycle anything should surprise anyone anymore. Is there no final firewall if, if uh, Trump takes Ohio and or Florida tonight? for the Republican Party establishment to come in there and, and, and trip him up? Well, no establishment firewall, nothing structural, nothing institutional, nothing break in case of emergency every hundred years. No, not that I can see. I mean, I think that if he takes both uh, Florida and Ohio and the rest of the states today, I think it's just a clear path to the number he needs. I cannot imagine what that convention is going to look like, Marty. I just cannot I mean, it's one thing if you have it's all It's going to be huge, Robin. <laughs> huge! <laughs> you know, I was, a, I was a whippersnapper during the 68 convention, Marty. And I was, uh, you know, checking that out outside. I never thought that would happen again generationally. But, I mean, again, this is happening in Cleveland. Yeah. It's not even in, in Denver or anything like that. Cleveland! It'll be real theater. And actually, I've never been to a convention, but I'm planning to attend this one. Are you going to wear a helmet? Are you going to wear padding? Uh, I hope I don't have to do that. But... Uh, I will be, I'll be, I'll take precautions. What's amazing to me is, is for the longest time, we've been sending reporters to just these coronation fait accompli events, and now there could actually be tension. There could actually be something in play. There could actually be uh, something more than, you know, the, the, the smoke-filled backroom deal. I'm hoping that the rhetoric tones down going forward. I think you will see a more presidential tone to Donald Trump's statements going forward, especially if he wins tonight. Um, so maybe things will actually calm down by the time July gets there, here. There is this argument from the optics of um, people beating each other up or that, that guy getting sucker punched you know, mm-hmm. several days ago. That it's, the, it's the last thing the GOP needed was an argument to get um, minority and African-American voters to the polls. Maybe they were not nearly as stoked about Hillary or Bernie as they were about Barack Obama in 2008 and the historic element of what was happening. Right. But now if they see Trump as kind of this lightning rod, I, I'm just I'm just amazed by that. I mean, it's, 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 it's a rare win-win thing for both candidates when he feeds that kind of populism and, and Hillary can benefit from that as well because she could just show it on the split screen. And that's right. I, I do think that there's a theory out there that if, say, October rolls around and Donald Trump and the Democratic candidate are very close, and if it's Hillary, that that will energize her base, women, minorities, to come out in force. 
And that's the scenario where Hillary Clinton beats Donald Trump. Do you have any um, any any wagers right now on who vice presidential candidates might be? Who it might make sense for regionally or people who uh, might shore up Hillary where she's weak or Donald Trump where he's not looked at as maybe having the gravitas of a president? Uh, I actually have not heard a lot of speculation. There have been some speculation about the cast, uh, Julian Castro on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, Donald Trump has said it is way too early, and I agree. He is probably not given that an, uh, any thought. And I just wonder what it would be like to be vice president to Donald Trump. I'm not quite sure what qualifications one needs. <laughs> you already got a hint with Chris Christie. He's like, the, the plane, get on the plane, go home. You know, he's like, <laughs> well, I don't think you want a New Yorker and a New Jersey candidate on the same ticket, but one never knows. You know, it's, isn't it interesting that two New Yorkers would be on the ticket there, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton is a transplant in New York, or you could say Illinois, Arkansas, whatever the heck you want to talk about, but that that's what's really amazing to me is that a guy who I've always known as an Upper East Side personality, as a New York personality, um, you know, as a New York Post cover personality, being the standard bearer for populism across the Sun Belt and uh, the Bible Belt. It just goes to show you that New York has everything. <clears throat> you have five minutes left, Marty. Talk to me. Anything you want to talk to me about. Talk to me about the meaning of life. Talk to me about the food scene in D.C., about bracketology. Uh, I, I know all these things go through your mind at, in, in split-second increments. Well, uh, you know, on the Bloomberg Terminal, we actually support a bracket competition among our customers and actually employees. So that got, went up on the terminal after Selection Sunday. And I haven't run the numbers recently, but I think about 8,000 of our customers have already filled in their brackets. And it's uh, March Madness. Is, it is incredible to me how consuming it has become for our customer base in the United States. Well, uh, who, are you, who are you rooting for? For example, me, I was raised in Miami, and for the first time in a long time, I could actually have a horse in the race in March Madness with my hurricanes. Well, now that I'm sort of a transplanted Washingtonian, I, I have to go with Virginia. I mean, they're oh. number one in their bracket, and it would be just unfaithful if I didn't root for them. Really? You think of your Washingtonian, you think of yourself as a Virginian? No, it's right. I can look out my window and see Virginia. Well, it's like Palin looking out her window and seeing Russia. <laughs> yeah, but I actually can see it. <laughs> All right. This, you know, we, we, uh, we are talking to you midday uh, Tuesday, but I want your predictions finally for tonight. Um, what happens and what happens to Marco Rubio? Uh, all right, I will stick my neck out and say that I think that Donald, it's a sweep for Donald Trump. I think he will take Ohio. I think that uh, Rubio and Cruz uh, will, in the days following, um, figure out that they, the money's not going to be there for him. Certainly Rubio. Uh, he's, uh, he, he's likely to drop out if that's indeed the case. And that it's, as I said, an, an inevitable march to Cleveland for Donald Trump. Does Rubio then go straight to Dancing with the Stars? He might, but, you know, uh, he's going to have to find a, uh, a partner the same size as him, I think. And then what, what happened? I mean, you know, his future, um, and then a lot of people called for him to step away maybe a week in advance. One, for the sake of the party, but also for self-preservation. Look, do you want to get slammed by... 
this populist menace in your own state? How are you going to parlay that into anything in the future? What, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? Well, actually, I think he has maybe made a pretty smart political bet. I do think that if indeed he does not win his home state of Florida, I think people will look back on it and say, look, it was the Trump phenomenon and not fundamentally his attractiveness as a candidate. So I think thoughts that if he loses tonight means the end of his political life are, are overstated. I think he'll be back. It's amazing that the Obama administration is announcing that it'll make it cheaper and easier for Americans to visit Cuba while paving the way for more arrangements allowing Cuban athletes and entertainers to work and be paid in the U.S. without defecting, as you guys report today, as the GOP has two Cuban Americans or people with Cuban ancestry at the top of the ticket. Isn't that amazing? It is an interesting place, isn't it? Amazing times we live in, Marty Shanker. I thank you so much for joining us. Marty Shanker, Senior Executive Editor at Bloomberg News. He joins us from the newsroom in D.C. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, Robin. Speak to you again. Talk to you soon. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and WRIR 97.3 FM RVA. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week.